Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. Well, good morning and happy Resurrection Day today. We're going to go into the scripture and focus on the crux of what we need to be celebrating today, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to go into a good amount of scripture, a lot of scripture, so that my friends that I won't see again until December 25th will have a lot to chew on. (laughs) I say that lovingly. We'll start with verse 1. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. How are we saved? By denomination, by religion, by church attendance, Clearly, the answer is no. We are saved by the gospel. In the Greek, the word is ta euangelion, which literally means the good message. But what is the good message? Well, the good message is of salvation. And if you take the word euangelion in the Greek, and you, the, the Greek letters are similar to English, and you put them together, it looks like a word in our English, a different form of it. And the word is evangelize. Right? See, the good message and evangelizing, preaching, they go hand in hand. They can't be separated because it's such a good message. It's the best message. The Apostle Paul here is laying a foundation. He said, if you're, you're saved, if you believe the gospel and hold fast, hold it down, retain what you've received. The gospel is not a novelty. It's not something you do. It's not a hobby. It's not a fad. It's not fashionable. It's something that you hold fast, that you hold within your heart your whole life once you receive it. Otherwise, your faith is useless. Verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Here Paul qualifies this message of the good news. In verse 3, he says, according to the scriptures. In Greek, the word is graphos, which means writings or document. Well, this tells us that he's not talking about the New Testament. Why? Because 1 Corinthians was written in A.D. 56. At this time, the New Testament was not yet nicely bundled into a codified work as the Old Testament was. Amazingly, Paul had to be speaking about the Old Testament which contains over 300 prophecies about the Messiah, many that speak about the crucifixion and the resurrection. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. It speaks about um, roughly 700 years prior to Jesus even coming to the earth about his sufferings and the abuse that he would take. Psalm 22, roughly uh, 1000 BC, spoke about the crucifixion in great detail prior to it even, even happening. The books of Genesis and Jonah, millennia prior to Jesus coming to the earth, speak about many types of the resurrection. And Psalm 110 speaks about the Messiah being seated at the right hand of the Father. Psalm 16, that he would not be left in Hades, nor God would not allow his body to decay, and so on and so on. That's pretty amazing. It's all that is in the Old Testament. This is the nucleus of the gospel. 
according to what Paul is saying here. Number one is the atoning sacrificial death on the cross. Number two is the resurrection. These are the most important parts of our faith. These two things are non-negotiable. Yes, you have the incarnation. You have Jesus coming as God, coming and taking the form of a man and and, um, being born of a virgin, a miraculous birth. Yes, you have the miracles, the supernatural, literal miracles, we believe. Yes, the teachings of Christ and his sinless life. But without the crucifixion and the resurrection, the former couldn't help us. There's nothing they could do for us. Like a prize fighter, Jesus had to go the distance. Otherwise, we would still be dead in our sins with no hope of eternal life. Do you realize how crucial it was in the Garden of Gethsemane when he agonized about his decision to go to the cross? If he did not go to the cross, we would all be in a lot of trouble right now. What's amazing is how many maybe churches or denominations can call themselves Christian and compromise these two issues. You can't do it. I'm going to turn to Galatians 1, 8, 9. just going to read two verses. Paul, also writing Galatians, says this, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you other than what you have received, let him be accursed. It's pretty amazing stuff there. I mean, he's strong language. He repeats it. So you won't find the you won't find God, the God of the Bible, or Jesus in some of these uh, newfangled type of, of beliefs that that really water down the Christian message. A couple was talking to me about uni, um, Unitarianism, and I didn't know much about it, so I looked it up in the dictionary. It's amazing what you can find in the dictionary. It's a contraction from two words, unity and Arianism. Well, we know what unity is, but did you know what Arianism is? Arianism was a 4th century heresy started by Arius that kind of went away for a while and then got picked up in the late 1800s or the early 1800s by the Jehovah Witnesses and apparently uh, Unitarianism. They deny the deity of Christ, they deny the Trinity, they accept many roads to God, and they deny any creed. This is a false Jesus than what Paul, Jude, John, and Jesus himself warned of. A sister in the church was telling me last week that she went to a memorial service for uh, the death of a loved one. And she said, I wanted to scream because not only did they sanitize the name of Jesus, which is becoming more and more common, but they even sanitized the name of God so as not to offend anybody. God forbid somebody should come in in this tragic moment and find out the true way to salvation, except they come and they go not knowing anything about the way to salvation. Verse 5. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, last year at this time, 
we went through the chronological progression of the different witnesses to the empty tomb and the resurrection. Now here he speaks about 500 brethren who saw it all at one time. These eyewitness accounts had to be between the time period of the resurrection and Jesus' ascension into heaven, that 40-day ministry period that he was on the earth. This would explain why Christianity thrived instead of died in the face of grueling persecution. Whether it was Nero or Domitian or Diocletian or any of these guys, uh, Christianity actually grew and flourished under persecution. A book you might want to check out is Fox's Book of Christian Martyrs, a uh, very interesting book. Uh, it talks about the historical accounts of the different people who died for their faith in Christ. There had to be a resurrection because, like I said, if you read some of these, even secular uh, Josephus and some of these works about um, uh, people who were persecuted okay, because they were Christians, this little splinter offshoot of Judaism that just grew and grew and grew to incredible numbers, they were... They would rather die than to worship the, the Caesars. They allowed their kids uh, to be taken into the Colosseum. Well, they didn't allow them, but they could have denied Jesus and it, it wouldn't have happened. Uh, all these things happened, but it defies logic unless these people were witnesses to something so amazing that they knew that this world wasn't the end-all, be-all. You see, it just defies logic. Verse 6, he says, Many have fallen asleep, which we're going to see in other scriptures as a euphemism for meaning the person died. Historically, a little over 20 years passed from the resurrection to this point in Paul's letter. In verse 7, what's notable is James is kind of singled out from the other names here. Just like uh, after the resurrection, you know, go tell the disciples and Peter. Because Peter was, you know, he denied him and Jesus wanted to name him personally. Uh, here James is named. We know that in, in John 7, 5, Jesus' half-brothers did not believe in him. Uh, there was many times where they wanted to take him and remove him from the crowds because they thought he had delusions of grandeur. But it wasn't until the resurrection that his own half-brothers believed in him. Witnesses. The New Testament is comprised of several different authors and different backgrounds who were witnesses of the resurrected Christ. Eyewitness accounts. Do you realize there was enough eyewitness accounts in the scripture to hold up in a court of law? Whether it be if you look at Old Testament law, if you look at Roman law, or if you look at our law, these eyewitness accounts will hold up under intense scrutiny. Skeptic can say to you, well, can you prove that scientifically, the resurrection? Well, that's a trick question. Because personally, I can't prove scientifically that I ate a bowl of Lucky Charms this morning. It's true. And what I mean by that is if you look up different rules of evidence, scientific evidence, you've got to check this out. Scientific evidence is repeated observations in a controlled environment. So most things can't be proved scientifically. It's, it's a trick. But the fact is there's an empty tomb. And we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, as we go further in. The empty tomb, the body of Christ, was never found. Another fact is that we, what we just spoke of, persecution under intense persecution, this sect grew incredibly. Uh, the writings, the testimonies in the scripture, and also the prophecies that have come true. So you have four incredible pieces of evidence that will stand the test of scrutiny. But Paul, you know, Paul sounds pretty humble here. Uh, I think he's got a great humility about himself, uh, realizing what the Lord used him to do for the foundation of Christianity. 
But Paul, he's a success story. He persecuted the church. This is evidenced by his own mouth and his own writings. This guy was a Pharisee, complicit in the death of many Christians. But God turned him around, made him an apostle, and used him to write half of the New Testament. How about that? God used a murderer. He used an admitted murderer to his glory. What about Moses? What about a lot of these guys that God turned around and used for his glory? Paul was a changed man. He gave up a lucrative career to be a, really basically a nomad. He was in the in crowd with the religious system. No doubt it was lucrative. Uh, history also tells us that, secular history. And he gave all that up to be a nomad, to have afflictions, to be persecuted, to be beat, to be shipwrecked. Well, why? Because he had something better than this world had to offer him. Because he had it all where he was. And he left that to follow Jesus. But what this shows is God is a merciful, forgiving, loving, and changing God, meaning he changes us. God will forgive us of any sin that we commit via the blood of Jesus Christ. So what is it that you've done that you don't think you can be forgiven for? Is it murder? Please don't tell me. <laughs> Especially if you're on the lamb, definitely don't tell me. But I do remember uh, few, oh, many years back, I was in the station and a guy came in and uh, I had to fingerprint him. Pretty good sized guy. And what I found out it was he killed a man with his bare hands. Come to think of it, as I recollect, I was by myself with this guy. But anyway, I'm fingerprinting him. This guy received Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And he became docile. This guy became so docile, one of the most, and if you look at him, you'd be afraid of him. But he became one of the most docile people I ever met. And we actually became friends. Uh, he's since departed to be with the Lord, but it was amazing how God changed this man's life. I can't imagine what the experience is like to kill somebody with your bare hands. But one of the greatest evidences of walking with the Lord is the evidence of a changed life. You know, James tells us that. He says, you can say you have faith, but if it's not followed by works, what is it? It's dead faith. So change is the big word here. What else have you done? Is it possible that somebody might have had an abortion? Somebody might have shoplifted here? Uh, drug dealer, rap sheet, been in trouble with the law. What is it? God forgives and God changes. Tayo, one of our elders, Tayo, um, last Wednesday at the Bible study, used uh, a term for God, which I never heard before. He said he is the unchangeable changer. Think about that. He's unchangeable because he's perfect. He doesn't have to change. We change because we get new and better information. But he's the unchangeable changer. He changes us because we're not perfect, and the more we get information from God, it, it helps us to become better as we change, right? The unchangeable changer. I really like that. But is your past holding you back? Is it haunting you? Well, don't let it. Repent and believe. Believe, and the promises of the kingdom are yours. Don't let anything hold you back from your relationship with him. Satan will always tell you of your past. He'll always whisper in your ear. He'll tell you of your past, and he'll always bring it up. Okay, and if you keep hearing that, it's not the voice of God, it's the voice of the enemy. God, on the other hand, the voice of God tells us that he's forgotten our past, and he tells us what he can do with us if we allow him. I was in court last week, and uh, I was done with my testifying, and I had come out of court, and I recognized the young lady 
from the township who has um, schizophrenia. And she, we got into a little discussion, and she said to me, she says, you know, I hear voices. And I said, well, so do I, but I know which ones to listen to and which ones not to listen to. <laughs> but it's true. We all hear voices. We all hear things in, in our thought life. And come on, it's not just me here. Let's, let's, let's talk here. <laughs> but it's true. You know, the, you have the voice of the enemy. When you become a Christian and you become mature in your walk, you start to understand the difference between the voice of God and the voice of the enemy. And the voice of the enemy can be subtle, he, he could be cunning, he could make it sound good, but the more, the closer you are to God, you realize that's flattery, you realize it for what it is, and you start to follow the voice of God. Verse 12. It says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how does some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain and your faith is also vain. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Some in the church of Corinth were saying that there was no resurrection. And you had Paul would plant these churches and then he would move on and plant other churches. And in between you'd have people come back and forth, these traveling philosophers, and they would bring in these heresies. And some people would, would buy into some of this stuff. But false teachers would come in and bring this heresy into the church. I'm not surprised. Let's turn to 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Paul says to Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So he's saying here that, that these people will not endure sound doctrine anymore. And who is he talking about? The world? He's not talking about the world. He's talking about people in the church. They will not endure sound doctrine. Why not? Because of their own wicked hearts. Because of their own desires. They're going to listen to something that maybe suits their lifestyle. Maybe suits something that they want to do that they know they shouldn't be doing. Maybe they don't want to hear the preacher talking about something that they're doing and feel that feeling of conviction. So what they're going to do is they're going to open their ears, they're going to church hop, and they're going to look for somebody who says something that's a touchy-feely message that makes them feel all warm and squishy inside. That's what they're going to look for. Okay? And it's based on their own wicked desires not to want to endure sound doctrine. Itching ears. So this is what was going on. And many in the church hold that same view. Some say that the resurrection is negotiable. Paul says... If the resurrection is negotiable, you can't call it Christian. You can't call it Christian without the basic frame and foundation 
of the tenets of Christianity that God had set forth in his word. So Paul makes a logical progression here, a few things. If there's no resurrection, Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, our preaching is in vain. And your faith is useless and your faith is foolish. If that's the case, if that's the case today, you might as well just all get up now, go home to your turkey and ham dinner. It's in the oven. Because this right now is a big waste of your time and my time. If Christ is not risen. If Christ didn't rise, then he either lied or he was crazy or he was incompetent or all the above. If then our faith is in vain because we worship a dead lying savior. And in that case, that's, a, that's not a savior at all. That's foolishness. Verse 17. He said, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You might as well drown yourself in some vice because you and I are still in our sins and we have no hope after this life because we can't come to God on our own merits. I want to turn to Isaiah 64, 6, which is one verse in the Old Testament. And it says this, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. So what this tells us is that this whole good works versus bad works is a scam that somebody perpetrated on, on humanity. There is no balance between good works and bad works. Because right here the Bible says that our good works really to God, he does, he's not impressed by them. Actually, he's more harsh in this wording. In verse 18, your loved ones who have died in Christ have perished in hell with no hope of escape if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Is this a nice, touchy-feely Easter message for you? <laughs> it's the truth, though. I come here to give you the truth. And sometimes I say things that make you feel good, and sometimes they say things that are just truthful. And whatever it is, it is. Verse 19, and he says, guys like Paul, guys like himself, the apostles, preachers, are the most pathetic fools, charlatans, liars, and even deceivers for preaching the resurrection if there is no resurrection. So you see this logical progression. And still today, some under the banner of Christianity say, oh, the resurrection, the deity of Christ, we, we can compromise on that. No, there is no compromise on that. Honestly, if I was convinced that the resurrection was false, I would not choose to be a pastor for a career. <laughs> this is hard work. You, you don't know what goes on behind the scenes. I would find an easier job to do, like being a police officer or something. You know? <laughs> but the bottom line is, if the resurrection weren't true, then what's the point of living a good life and suffering persecution for being Christian? And the answer is, there is no point. And you could see a little bit of a, maybe a microcosm of this displayed in the, the evolution, uh, so to speak, in the public schools. Now, I'm not trying to scare anybody because my kid goes to public school, but removal of the Ten Commandments. Oh, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not, you know, commit adultery. We've got to take that out of there. That could be stumbling to a child. Remove prayer from the schools. Tell the kids that the, they evolved from some type of pond sludge. That, that's something we'll tell them. That's a good thing to tell them. And when they die, that's it. There's no, there's no God. There's no accountability. You just die. Well, what do you think they're going to do? What will they do? They'll satisfy their raging hormones. Pregnancies will rise. Physical fights for dominance. Survival of the fittest will rise. School shootings. There's a fad now. Sex in the classroom. Female teachers having sex with male students. It's an epidemic. 
You ever you watch the news? This is unbelievable. Kids bringing weapons to school, gangs. There's, there's this thing that started with the police department. It was called an SRO. It's called the school resource officer, and most schools have them. After the whole Columbine thing, it was a good idea to put police officers in schools to help, you know, just that's their whole assignment is to be in the schools, especially the high schools. And uh, even after the whole school shooting thing kind of died down, it's funny, in our town, they didn't want us to pull the SROs out of school. They were like, we like the cops in school, please keep them here. So this is what, what's going on. And we wonder why a lot of our public schools are in such a mess around the country. Why should anyone have the motivation for doing the right thing if there's nothing after this life? There is no motivation. There was a bumper sticker that I saw, and it said, he who dies with the most toys wins. Well, that's a good philosophy if there's nothing after this. Get as much toys, get as much gratification, get as much as you can, because you're just going to die. It, it's, it's ridiculous. Okay, verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead, and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. As that in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one after his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. The truth is Christ is risen, and that's why we're here today. We've talked a little bit about the Da Vinci Code last year. Actually, we talked a lot about it. Uh, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas. Uh, about a month ago, we talked about the ossuary of Jesus. That was a big buzz in the media, although the archaeologists themselves distanced themselves from it. We debunked that. Um, but you have, you have to understand something. Why is it always at this time of the year? Because they have to debunk the resurrection. They have no choice. The world system has to attack it. Why? Because if they debunk it, then Christianity dies. And when Christianity dies, accountability to God dies, and they break the bonds of God. Psalm 2, I keep referring to it. There's a the wealth of, of wisdom in the psalm. Psalm 2, 3. Or I'll start with one. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? And the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, quote, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. The world system doesn't want accountability. They don't want to face God. They don't want to be accountable for the vices that they perpetrate day after day. They want to break the apron strings. They want to break the, God, the, the bonds between God himself and his creation. They want to live autonomously from God. So this is why the whole attacking of the resurrection has to happen by the world system. See it for what it is, and just when the hype clears and the dust settles, do your research and you'll find out that these all kind of come and go. They fall by the wayside. Verse 20. He speaks about the first fruits of the dead. In the Old Testament, the first fruits would take place the Sunday after the Passover. Okay, After the Passover, the first day of the week, the Sunday would be 
the, the first fruits, the offering of the first fruits of the harvest. What happens is you have dead, lifeless seeds, and you can hold them all day long and years after years and just stare at them, and they're not going to do anything. They're dead, lifeless seeds. However, when you put them in the ground, God will cause them to germinate and spring to life and eventually produce a harvest crop. John 12:24, one verse. Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. So the picture of something has to die, and then it has to be, uh, it comes back to life again and it produces a crop. So the first fruits of the dead is Jesus led with his resurrection. The resurre- then there was res- resurrections of others who were in Hades. And if you were here when we covered Luke 16, we talked about Hades. We talked about the, the abode of the souls who died before Christ. And we talked about when Jesus rose from the dead in Isaiah 61, he freed the captives. He went down to Hades and he took them out of that holding cell because they couldn't be with God and have that fellowship with God until Jesus died for their sins. So it's kind of an amazing thing that Jesus died for the sins of people in the past, the present, and us in the future. So this is what's going on here. Um, And also, Matthew 27, what's interesting is, after the resurrection, there was amazing sights. And Matthew 27 records that the graves were actually being opened up and people were seeing uh, people that they had seen come out of the graves, right? It's a pretty amazing sight there. And also, Matthew 11:12 is a very interesting scripture. It says, from John the Baptist until now, Jesus says, from John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. And we explained what that means. We explained how at that point in time between John's message to repent and Jesus' atoning sacrifice and the resurrection, all of a sudden, hordes of people were being freed, okay, from Hades, and they were coming into the kingdom of heaven. Now, this whole thing with Adam in verse 21. By man came death. Adam brought death into the world via rebelliousness and sin, and he broke fellowship with God. What's interesting is the New Testament is replete with references to Genesis and Adam literally. Genesis is not an allegory. When you compromise on some of the scripture, you get into this, this, this spiral and you start compromising on all the scripture. If you're not familiar with Genesis, and maybe some of this stuff is new to you, there's a website called AnswersInGenesis.org. AnswersInGenesis.org. They run together. And what it is, is it's a website that shows, is actually a creation research museum. They have um, hundreds of, of uh, scientists and, and scholars that have to hold a doctorate to even be on the website. And they show all around the world all these scientists who don't believe in evolution. They said it's not possible. And he also speaks about all these scientists prior, famous people that you might have heard of, that were Christians and believed in the creation model. So Adam brought sin into the world, and Jesus, as the last Adam that the Bible speaks about, through Jesus we have fellowship with God restored, and his spiritual offspring have everlasting life. So it's kind of neat. You have two massive harvests. One, when Jesus rose from the dead, okay, he freed the captives in Hades. Many people came into heaven. Then you had a trickling effect of believers throughout the years. And then we're going to talk about a little bit about the rapture, where there'll be another massive influx of, of souls into heaven. So you have two harvests happening. Now, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death was not part of the original plan. 
Um, that's why when you go to a funeral, people are upset, they're crying, they're distraught, they can't think, they're confused, because death is not part of the original plan. It kind of, it, it takes us down. We, we, you know, we, we take a hit when somebody who we love dearly dies, especially when it happens unexpectedly. Uh, but at the end of time, death won't exist anymore. That will be the last enemy to be destroyed. Verse 29, Paul says, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Baptism for the dead is only mentioned here in all the scripture. This is the only place. It's, a, it's an unusual um, thing that he's saying that it's, you know, it, it really can take a whole service to kind of make you understand it. But understand this. 1 Corinthians is a corrective letter. <laughs> Paul didn't have a lot of nice things to say in 1 Corinthians. Okay? He addressed a lot of problems that were going on in the church. The Corinthians were so debased that there was a Greek word called Corinthiazomai, which meant in the Greek to act like a Corinthian. It is actually an insult. If somebody said Corinthiazomai to you, you would be insulted. Just like the term, you ever hear the word Cretan? Hey, that person's a Cretan. Do we even know what that is? A Cretan is somebody who lives in the island of Crete. But even in the Bible, it comes from the Bible. Uh, was it Paul? He said that they're lazy and they're liars. And Cretans had a bad reputation. So we use that term today in our vernacular. And uh, Corinthian also was a bad term because people were debased. And it even carried into the church. So this whole thing about baptism for the dead was a pagan practice. And he's not encouraging it here. I have to um, move a little quickly through because this is a long... I'm just going to hit on certain points here. Verse 32, he says... Uh, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And we, we spoke about that. Um, if there's no resurrection, um, that's, that's what people would do. If there is the resurrection and, and we know that there is a resurrection, we believe that, then that's something we shouldn't be doing. Uh, but don't be deceived. And I'm going to paraphrase this. I think Paul is basically saying that uh, don't be deceived. Don't hang out with idiots in the church that live like the world and believe like the world because you will be corrupted. So, and he says, awake to righteousness and don't sin. You know, Romans 6 says this to us. We, Paul speaks about the grace. He says, when sin abounds, grace abounds more. And in, um, when Romans 6 he speaks about, he says, so then... Since if I sin, grace will also abound because God is good, should I continue in sin? Um, that grace may abound. He said, certainly not. How should we who were dead to sin, who died to sin, live any longer in it? Verse 51. I'm going to actually skip through uh, to 50. Or, or, let's start with 35. Let's go through the whole thing. But someone will say, how are they dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, 
another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spirit is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. So he talks about this in order here. The first man was of the earth, made of the dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of the dust. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now, what that means is he speaks about the different bodies and the different glories, okay? Uh, what he's saying is what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what he's saying is if you have a grain, it looks a certain way. Sometimes they're ugly or a bulb that you plant. They're kind of hideous looking. And what you do is that they're dead. But when you put them in the ground and you cover them with dirt and you water them, and um, they germinate and they come to life. Now, what you see come out of the ground doesn't look like the thing you put into the ground, especially those bulbs. My wife loves to plant and garden, and she brings these home. There's like a big bag of dirt and these hideous things in there. I'm like, what is that? But then when she plants it, after a few weeks, this beautiful flower comes out, and it looks totally different than what she put in the ground. Okay. Likewise, this is amazing how God shows the spiritual things through the temporal things. God does the same thing. When we die and our time has expired on this earth, our flesh rots and it dies and our heart stops beating and the bacteria take over and we, we get put into the ground. But what happens is he speaks about the resurrection. A resurrected body is a different body. When we go to be with the Lord, okay, and, and the rapture comes and we get our new bodies, what happens is I'm not going to look like this anymore. I'm not going to have pains in my neck and problems with my feet and trouble sleeping. I'm going to have a perfect body. Now, here's the difference. The human body was designed for gravity. Um, 9.8 meters per second. What is it? 9.8 feet per second squared or something like that. I don't remember the thing. But gravity, our body is designed to take gravity. We have things in our body that cushion us so that we don't compress too much. Our bodies are designed to take in a certain percentage mostly of air, mostly of nitrogen. Was it 18% oxygen, some carbon dioxide, and inert gases? And we can be sustained with that, right? Our bodies are designed to withstand 14 pounds per square inch of pressure in our bodies. So our bodies are designed to this universe, okay? Now, when we change in the moment, a twinkling of an eye, when we're resurrected, okay, when the rapture comes and we get our new bodies, we're going to have bodies again but they're going to be designed for the spiritual realm. They're no longer going to be designed for this frail earth. They're going to be perfected. You see? So you see things in nature that transfer over to the spiritual realm. Verse 50. He says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. That's why he changes us. Because the Bible also says that we couldn't stand in his presence. We'd be toast. You know, our bodies are really frail if you think about it. 
Um, I mean, they're good for what they do here. I see people who run the, you know, who do the triathlons and people who work out and can bench 500 pounds and they're like incredibly strong, but they wouldn't stand up in front of God. They would be incinerated because that's the body that we have right now. 51. So he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Okay, so verse 51 says, We shall not all sleep. And we talked about what sleep means. Not all believers will die. Maybe our generation will live to see the rapture. Who knows? Jesus says, the Bible says we're not supposed to date set, so I'm not going to do it if the Bible says not to do it. And I don't know anyway, so that, that takes care of that. But he says we shall all be changed. Now, I want to read one more scripture to you, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Paul says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Or died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And again, that's the rapture from the Latin uh, rapturo, which comes from the Greek harpazo. So it is in the scripture, the harpazo is the violent, or harpazo, excuse me, is the violent snatching of believers up from the earth and change the twinkling of an eye and to be with the, Lord's in the, air, the Lord in the air. Now, at Christ calling us home, if it happened today, we would be alive and we would be changed in a twinkling of an eye and we'd be up. If it was your relative who had passed on who was in Christ, they would be, uh, their bodies would be changed. They would be called up first. Their bodies would be changed. Their uh, spirit reunited with their new, new fashioned bodies and we would all meet together up in the clouds of the air. And this is amazing. What, what blows me away is this is the only holy book that gives you in detail things that are going to happen and, and I mean, like the mechanics of a, like a, a small block Chevy 350 and you open up the manual and you see how the tolerances, the, the pistons and, and the crankshaft and everything, how it's supposed to go in that motor. This book gives you all the tolerances of what's going to happen in what order, how it's going to be fashioned, how it's going to take place. And it's amazing. It's pretty amazing stuff. But you have two things. You have the first resurrection and the second resurrection. The first resurrection started with the uh, Jesus freeing the captives 2,000 years ago, all the people leaving Hades, going to be, their, their souls going to be with the Lord, okay, the first resurrection. You have the trickle-down effect of believers through the ages, and then you have some point in time where the rapture happens. 
the next major uh, exodus from the earth and into heaven, the rapture. And that's considered the first resurrection, okay? Then what you have is the second resurrection as we go on to Revelation. The second resurrection, that's not something you want to be a part of. That's when all the dead who are the rebellious, the ones who are in sin, the ones who have, who have rejected the Lord. The second resurrection was when those people are called up. The sea gives up the dead, Revelation tells us. Hades gives up the dead, the other part of Hades. And the, the earth gives up the dead, okay? And they go to the great white throne judgment where God judges them for their rebelliousness. That's not something you want to be a part of. You want to be a part of the first resurrection. That's the good one, okay? So... Continuing on, um, the remainder of this chapter is death is destroyed for the believer. The thing that's robbed us for so long of our loved ones will be destroyed. And why? Because Jesus Christ as the prototype of the resurrection of the dead. Because of Jesus Christ. I want to read this verse again. Verse 58 and think about this. The last verse. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. What you do here has eternal ramifications for all eternity. What you do here has eternal ramifications for all eternity. If you live a self-centered, self-directed life, that's going to affect you. If you live a life where you think of others and you're steadfast and immovable in the faith, and you do the work of the Lord, and you have an effect on people, that will have eternal consequences for good. Think about who your favorite pastor, Bible teacher, evangelist, you know, could be Chuck Smith, could be Charles Stanley, Franklin Graham, who knows. But all these guys have ministries that lead millions of people into the kingdom, okay? All these guys have those ministries. But somebody, a somebody, maybe a nobody to us, led each one of these men, had such an influence on each one of these men, maybe as little boys, maybe later on in life, to lead them to the Lord. Okay, think about verse 58. A somebody, a somebody, a nobody, was steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, and knowing that his labor was not in vain in the Lord, even if he didn't see it on this, this side of eternity. It's good to celebrate the birth of Christ. But it's even better to celebrate that he was able to go the distance, which has consequences, good consequences for us. He gave his life as a ransom for many, Jesus did. In light of this, I'm just going to read it one more time. And I'm going to say this to you. My beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is never in vain in the Lord. Let's pray the Lord, even if he 